A few hours after the death of former political prisoner and Taiwanese democracy fighter Shi Mingde, Formosa Files contacted Linda Gale Arago, an American human rights activist who is well known here in Taiwan for the role she played during some watershed moments in the Taiwan democracy movement. Linda was married to Shi Mingde from 1978 to 1995. On the morning of Shi's passing, January 15, 2024, Linda was out fielding interviews from the media, but kindly took the time to speak with me, at length, talking about everything from her early days in Taiwan as the daughter of a U.S. military officer, to her participation in the famous Kaohsiung incident in late 1979. And of course, we talked about her former spouse, and as you will hear, she has some high praise, as well as some stinging criticisms. This interview was edited for time and clarity, but none of Linda's remarks were edited out or changed in any significant way. So I was born 1949. You can figure out I'm going to be 75 years old tomorrow. And I came to Taiwan when I was 14 with my father, who had previously been with Military Assistance Advisory Group of the U.S. Army. So he had a background which was quite close to the authorities in Taiwan. His friends were all military, and that's what I knew when I came to Taiwan. That was 1963. But I gradually came to understand that the government was the mainlanders who had come from China and were really oppressing the majority of the population, the native Taiwanese. And later I married a, a Taiwanese, and of course that gave me gradually the understanding what a repressive regime it was under martial law. So I came back to Taiwan after five years as a teenager in Taiwan. I came back to Taiwan in 1977, and I had a project to study factory workers, but at the same time, I was beginning to do human rights material smuggling together with Lynn Miles and Osaka, who had been doing it for quite a while, and there's a history. So in this process, the Taiwan government wanted to kick me out. I had to find somebody to marry to not get kicked out. The democratic movement was just getting off the ground in Taiwan. And this is already after, you know, 30 years of martial law and thousands of political prisoners and executions. But of course, the society was exteriorly becoming more prosperous with the export economy. So that's how I came to marry the former political prisoner, Shi Mingde, whom we called his uh, Japanese name Nori. And uh, he had been in jail for 15 years from 1962 to 1977. And because Chiang Kai-shek died then, 1975, a lot of political prisoners were being let out of jail. And it was slightly a new era with the son of Chiang Kai-shek, that's Jiang Jingguo. And in the United States, there was Jimmy Carter as president promoting human rights. So actually, this gave us just a little bit of a, uh, of a window. So in 1975 or so, you know, it's a new generation. It's uh, 25 years since martial law was imposed on Taiwan and a new generation, and then a new generation of uh, Taiwanese who spoke good Mandarin and could move into the middle class and take teacher and uh, other such jobs. In addition to that, then there was this large wave of political prisoners getting out of long imprisonment, you know, like my ex had been in jail at that point already 15 years. And however, showing concern for the political situation and particularly for the big riot in 1977, the first time there was a riot against the government stuffing the ballot boxes, you know. So the United States is always saying, was always saying, although Taiwan was under martial law, that Taiwan is free China. 
know, and it's an obvious lie, and I realized it was a lie pretty soon on, and then uh, was really among those you know, anti-Vietnam War people that were enraged about the U.S. supporting dictatorships all over the world. So when I got involved, I was rather prepared to go another step, and then I would have been deported, but I married the political prisoner. And to my surprise, uh, he was a real firebrand. He was much more of a firebrand than I had even expected. And a, a tall, thin guy with uh, no teeth. You know, he'd lost all his teeth in jail. And at that time, he was like uh, 37. I would think I was 26 then. And the opposition actually came together on the occasion of our formal marriage. So our formal marriage was really an occasion for the opposition to join together just before the election of December 1978. And we knew that the U.S. government was moving towards recognizing the PRC. And there was a general expectation that when the U.S. recognized the PRC, the PRC would take the opportunity to invade Taiwan. And that if the people of Taiwan did not speak up despite martial law, there would be no resistance to the PRC taking over. That was the, that was the real underlying fear, aside from just basic you know, social issues and democracy and uh, exploitation of the farmers and things like that. So with my husband as one of the five leaders of the movement, the movement was really uh, kicked off in late 1978. And then the United States recognized the PRC right in the middle of the election period in December 1978. The government called off the elections and then was really starting a new wave of terror. But I must say my husband, Nori uh, Shuminda, was quite strong to stand up against it. And uh, at that point, we had several people elected to the Provincial Assembly. So the movement started off really as protests against political arrest. The government was continually threatening and arresting people. And then we would have a big rally and a big march, and usually they would be released. So this went on and escalated over a period of a year until the Kaohsiung incident of Human Rights Day. That's December 10th, 1979. And in that time, the government had brought in riot trucks and cattle prods and all kinds of crowd control and riot control equipment from South Africa because the KMT was very close to South Africa. And in that event, we had a huge rally of about 30,000 people and probably many more than that coming and going. And uh, government provocateurs set off a clash and that was the government's claim that what we were doing was an armed uprising. So starting December 13th, about uh, 400 people were arrested, and my house was uh, raided, and several people were arrested at my house, Tanju Lu Xiolian. Shuningda escaped through the back. Amazingly, this guy is, deserves to have uh, you know stories written about him, how he could escape when the house was totally encircled. And uh, the fact that he was on the run for um, about uh, two months did make a difference to the whole outcome. Uh, in that there was enough time for us to mobilize and for the uh, international press to demand to attend the trial. So I think you know that quite well as the Kaohsiung incident and the trials that followed, right? And then the trials became, you know, like history will absolve me, that kind of a scene. And my husband made an excellent statement. The other eight people in the main martial law case sedition case also made uh, quite a good showing, but he said Taiwan has been independent for 30 years. 
even though under martial law, it has been independent from China. What we lack is internal democracy. That was his defense in court. And he was sentenced to life. Other people were sentenced to 12 to 14 years. But of course, uh, under some pressure from the U.S. continuing, so Taiwan did begin to uh, open up in 1990. So the trial was 1980. And then after the trial, martial law just had no effect. People would not pay attention to it. There was publications, speeches. It was such a breakthrough. It's just like everybody stopped obeying martial law. Hmm. And then from there, a, a gradual democratization uh, proceeded. So I think this, this gives us a, a kind of a capsule. Of course, Taiwan became a richer place. In this time, relations with China were opened up in 1986. The old soldiers were allowed to go back home. The Taiwanese Americans who had been working so long for democratization in Taiwan were able to come back to Taiwan and all through the 90s. Uh, there were a lot of people uh, really dedicated to uh, pushing Taiwan's democracy. And finally, in 1996, we had a, a real presidential election. Right. And then Li Denghui, who was KMT, but he has native Taiwanese, was elected. And then 1993, we finally had a real legislative election. Uh, of course, the, the the reason we're talking about all of this, and, and assuming that in particular is that he passed away this morning, we're talking on January right. 15th, 2024. Uh, condolences, of course, to you and to all of his family and friends. Um, but, right, but we have not got to the critical point of yes, what I have to say about right. him that is not so, uh, not so uh, congratulatory. Okay, mm. so Shiming I think, was a real spearhead. Uh, of the democratic movement under these extreme conditions that any any infraction, anything he was convicted of would return him to life imprisonment. I think he showed incredible courage in that period. He had no money, no, uh, a little, you know, a little support from friends, but he was totally impoverished. He's always been in poor health. He was in poor health then, and he worked like a maniac, I have to say, and always uh, up the ante to uh, challenge the martial law. Okay, but... He rather expected when he got out of jail in 1990, a lot of people were expecting that he would be like Nelson Mandela, that he would be a presidential candidate. Yes. And that's, but that's not exactly what happened. And I always have to explain to people that his many years in solitary confinement, plus his original kind of conspiratorial character, meant that he was a person who was always very isolated, very strong, but very isolated. And in many ways, this became his downfall. Chen Shui-bian was finally, Chen Shui-bian, who was his lawyer uh, in the Kaohsiung incident trial, was elected to be president in the year 2000. That was a huge breakthrough uh, with the KMT splitting its vote as it is now. You know, the KMT people seem to be so arrogant that they don't have a common goal that they're continually splitting their vote. Uh, and that Chen Shui-bian got elected to the presidency. And I think uh, Shiming Den went through considerable sour grapes at that time. And Chen Shui-bian was caught in some irregularities. Uh, I'd say maybe more than irregularities, like the same as the uh, reform president in uh, Korea. Yes. And I think there are some sociological reasons for that, you know, like trying to desperately hold on to the opposition when the business folks expect uh, Greece, you know, expect Greece. Mm. So... Uh, in 2006, that is, Chen uh, Zhebin just narrowly made the second term with uh, just a 50.1% of the vote. And then a lot of things were being revealed. 
uh, about, you might say, uh, corruption, some corruption within the government, nothing near to the corruption that was under the KMT and using different standards. But uh, Shiminga was ushered into the position of leading a movement uh, to topple Han Zhebian, his own lawyer, his own DPP. But the blues were behind it. The KMT was really behind it. Even the PRC was behind it. And that was called the Red Shirt Movement of 2006. So he was basically trying to topple the same inheritors of the democratic movement that he had led. Can I ask a, a, a question? I, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm interested to know uh, from your uh, – so all of us know situations where people do things that uh, history determines to perhaps be wrong, but they believed right. they were doing it for the right reasons. Do you think that, it, that this applies in this case? Did When he was doing this, did I he think, think- – well, Shiminga put out a statement uh, criticizing uh, Ben for not sufficiently standing up for Taiwan independence. But a few days before that, he had been meeting in Thailand with a patsy of the PRC government who had given him considerable sums of money and a house. Uh, so this is a, a huge question. I, kinda, I rather think that uh, his period as when he was so highly rated coming out of prison when he was uh, the DPP chairman... I rather think that Shimingda lost touch with reality and that he still thought he was, uh, you know, doing the right thing. Uh, but I think he was not really calling the shots. This is, this is my overall judgment on the movement. Do, do you think uh, he suffered perhaps head. from a yes. bit of a messianic complex? Uh, definitely. That's the right term to put it. He had a messianic complex. He liked to be, uh, you know, at the head of a, a mob of thousands of people. But I think that movement did come close to toppling the government. It certainly helped put Tan Sui Ben in jail, but that would alter the benefit of the KMT and uh, could have even been to the benefit of the PRC. So you might guess that after that, uh, his friends hated him. And uh, I must say I was really quite depressed because I think the biggest damage he did was to his own image as a leader of the Taiwan independence movement. As this, as the spirit of the Taiwan independence movement, uh, and many many people were really depressed and rather moved back, you know, or let's say moved back from the challenges they could have gone on to pursue. And then, even worse, I mean, as bad or worse, is he sued many of the old friends who criticized him. He sued at least a dozen of them, including the head of the Presbyterian Church who had gone to jail for hiding him. These people were given tremendous financial uh, sanctions under the Ma government, under the KMT government that followed Tan Zhebian. And uh, it was quite a stroke. I mean, quite a quite a nasty stroke on his part. Um, maybe you don't know about these cases because they were not that widely publicized. But they basically punished his former friends who had helped him when he was on the run. And I still can't know really why he did it. He thought this is a way to recover his reputation, but of course, it really made his reputation worse. Hmm. So, yes, the head of the Presbyterian Church, Gao Jinming, suffered five years in prison because of giving him sanctuary. And yet he sued Reverend Gao. And, you know, and then the, the sentence was Reverend Gao said an apology, but others were actually sentenced under the courts when the KMT was back in power. So this really looks very bad for his overall legacy. But overall, I still do confirm and affirm what I saw him do in the democratic movement period. 
Yeah. Uh, maybe this is the best I can say. Uh, and I think that's why I really described his personality as being quite withdrawn, isolated, and uh, unable really to form a team, which is why he wasn't really able to become presidential material. He just was never able to really be an administrator, and uh, other people could. And he did still have much he could have done in his later life that he didn't do. But he, he deserves his reputation and his place in the, the movement for democracy, despite yes. his flaws. Yes, that's, that's my overall view. But I would say the fact that he was turned by his own arrogance, turned by blues and even people from the PRC camp flattering him, uh, I think we have to account to his as a great strike against Taiwan's overall advance, because he was the fighting spirit in many ways. He really was the fighting spirit. And for him to go down on that account and to, you might say, be corrupted, perhaps with money, but also certainly with women, uh, certainly with flattery, was a great strike against Taiwan's move towards self-determination. You mentioned earlier his serving 15 years in solitary confinement. He was sentenced to life imprisonment twice, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that's right, that's right. So it must have affected you. And 10 years later. So he was jailed from 1962 to 1977, and then 1980 to 1990. So a little over 25 years total, yes. It, it must have had some effect on his psychological makeup. I would say from living with him in the period from uh, 78 and 79, I'd say it did. And in that period, I could see that he was working like a man on fire to challenge the authoritarian rule or that he, and that he always expected to die. He, as I knew him, he was almost suicidal in that he expected to die uh, in prison by execution by some means. He really didn't expect to live. So it's hard for me to judge his later period when when he had uh, material comfort. You know, it's very hard for me to judge because I know that uh, when I was living with him, he would he would barely eat. He would spend hundreds of NT, which was a lot of money in those days, running around in taxis trying to contact everybody to organize things because you couldn't use telephone. You couldn't use telephone because the phones were all tapped. And then he would go to the corner and eat uh, a plain noodles, you know, for 10 NT, you know, like just the minimum. Mm -hmm. And it's always hard for me to put that together, how he could be so tremendously self-sacrificed and careless of his own health. And he would usually work, you know, 20 hours a day until he collapsed in that early period. So several times we had to take him to the hospital. We went to the hospital. We would be surrounded by... Uh, heavies, you know, by agents and uh, worried about whatever they might put into the intravenous dip, mm. drip. Uh, so we usually tried to get out of the hospital as soon as possible. That was the situation uh, before 1980. I think in his later life, he was uh, very well off. He uh, married his, uh, his third wife. He married his assistant. I think if I want to say that anything else for him, he's well known for being irresponsible in uh, relationships with women. And uh, nowadays with the Me Too movement, he would definitely be laid low. Uh, but his wife, yes, his, you know, his, his wife and his uh, two daughters born later, who were 20, um, hold him in high respect and fondness. And his two earlier daughters who suffered through the martial law 
and uh, a few other children who are not recognized at all uh, have a different direction. It seems to angle. it seems to me the, yeah. the the more I study history, it doesn't matter what country or what person. It it seems yeah. that you know the, the every hero turns out to have a side that's flawed, and uh, so yeah, a very flawed hero. Well, uh, Shiminga some was sometimes called uh, Taiwan's Mandela, and we did go to South Africa in 1994. But I'd say he definitely was not able to maintain. Uh, the strength and the uh, group momentum, the momentum of a group of people that Mandela had. And mm. I think that is, I think, due to his solitary personality, as I said before, his very solitary personality, and also to the fact that the movement did not have all the experience. We definitely, in the 1970s, uh, facing martial law, did not have all the experience that other countries have and uh, or news. You know, I mean, Taiwan was so isolated from the rest of the world under martial law that they couldn't really know all the different things that other movements had learned, including, you know, like agent provocateurs in the Gaussian incident. I guess overall, as I look back, it's uh, a kind of, you know, bittersweet. I think, yes, we did have our moment of heroism. And I think that heroism was really the watershed in Taiwan's history, you know, 1979 and, and 1980 through the trials and really led Taiwan to push forward for democracy. And we do appreciate the democracy now in Taiwan. We really do appreciate it. So we just, uh, two days ago, passed through uh, a very important election. And uh, nowadays, you cannot keep secrets. You cannot keep things hidden as it used to be. And this is all, of course, very much thanks to our democracy. But Taiwan is under huge threat from China. And we really do need much more of that strength of the democratic movement, period. And I feel that the present government, at least under Taiwan, has not totally faced up to the threat from China. They're afraid to panic the population. And this is where I do look back somewhat to the uh, bravery of the democratic movement from 77 through 1980, and then as far as it continued in its challenge. I think that's probably the main lesson for me, that Taiwanese need to be a lot tougher, but they were. You know, I mean, we look back and people always say, Taiwan, Taiwan Lang, Aichi, Yashi. Taiwanese want money and they're afraid of death. But I think from the 1970s, I don't know, I don't think that is really the only characteristic of Taiwanese, and I hope that they will meet the challenge. Thank you so much for speaking with Formosa Files, and also thank you for everything you've done for Taiwan. And of course, we're uh, thankful for what uh, Shimingda did as well. Uh, yes, so I really appreciate your calling and giving me a, me a chance to talk at length, you know, to really say what I think. Absolutely. Uh, thank okay, you. So, Eric, thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye, Eric. Thanks for listening, and if I may be so bold, thank you, Linda, on behalf of Taiwan for all you've done and sacrificed. And of course, Mr. Nori Shimingda, rest in peace, and thank you, sir. A flawed hero he might have been, but a hero nonetheless. I'm Eric Michael Smith.